Shabbat Shalom. Good to see everyone here today, and uh, wow, wow. We are in the season of one of the greatest stories of all time, epic drama, the story of Esther, the celebration of Purim. So we're moving in. We'll be there in a couple of weeks. It's going to be here before we know it. And so I decided to do a series this year on the story of Purim. I think it's three parts. Who know, knows? It may go a little bit longer, but uh, it's so much material, so much to say. And so I'm just trying to kind of cherry pick our way through and hit some high points so we can learn some lessons. I've entitled this Purim and Providence. Actually, not only Purim and Providence, but more importantly, what we can learn from that and apply to our lives in 2021. If we can't make application, what, what, what good is the Word of God, right? There's no transformation. We're, we're called to study the Word in order to apply it so that we can experience the reality of God. Ezra, the great prophet Ezra said this, he said, I studied in order to do. I studied the Torah in order to do it. I wanted to do it. And then after doing it, to teach it to others. That is the rhythm of the people of God. That is how we understand our God and live to his glory. We study his word, apply it, and then teach it to others. So we're going to look at the story of Purim and do some of that. It's found in the book of Esther. It reveals the sublime truth of the power of God's hidden providence in bringing about his plans. What is providence? Providence is God's provision and protection when conceived as exercising such care and guidance in directing human affairs to bring about his will and his plans. Let me break that down a little bit. It's the working of God behind the scenes in order to bring about his will, regardless of what people are doing or trying to do. In other words, God's saying, I'm going to bring about my will, my pleasure, my plans, without violating your free will. But I'm smart enough to actually bring about events and circumstances and pressures to help bring about the decisions that need to be made to push my kingdom forward. And many, many times we become players in that without even realizing it. God is amazing. He's bringing about his plan for all of us. And he does that most of the time behind the scenes. We read the, the word of God and we see all these miracles, right? In the pages of scripture. Failing to note that between each page may be several years. Most of what God does, he does behind the scenes. Most of the time that he's protecting and providing for us, he does it in a way that we don't even know he's the one that's doing it. I don't know how many times God has saved my life. And I didn't realize it was him who was watching over me. And, and until, you know, hindsight, I began to realize, oh, wow, that was something. I could have lost my life. God loves us. He loves you. 
He's watching over us. He's watching over you. That's his providence. God's providential care. It's really summed up beautifully in Paul's epistle in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. He says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Think about that. God, listen, this is what it says. Let me just read it again. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. God causes all things, all events, all circumstances, everything that happens. He actually is able to navigate that in a way that comes back to you in the form of blessing. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And what's the context of those words? The foreknowledge of God. That's the context. If you you read the passages before and immediately following verse 28, you'll know it's, it's the foreknowledge of God. For who he foreknew, he predestined. See, God's foreknowledge, foreknowledge is tied into providence. You can have no providence without foreknowledge. In in God's foreknowledge, he's able then to navigate plans and circumstances in order to bring about his will and good pleasure. It's in his foreknowledge that he crafts plans that causes all things to work together for your good. We get in the middle of it and we think, oh my gosh, you know, there's just no way out. God's saying, oh yeah, I saw that a long time ago. I saw that long before it ever came and I've already got a plan just for you. That's God's providence. He intervenes and interacts in circumstances in order to provide, protect, and bring about his will. Now, I want you to note something carefully. This is the sizzle of the book. Note carefully that not once is God mentioned in the entire 10 chapters of the book of Esther. Not once. What do you think about that? Here we have a book of the Bible in the canon of Scripture that doesn't even mention God. And who on earth would have made that part of the canon of Scripture in the first place, right? An entire book of the Bible that doesn't even mention God, and it's actually been included in the canon of Scripture. Why? Have you ever thought about that? Why? Perhaps to illustrate the meaning and purpose of divine providence. In fact, it is the book that tells us, that reveals to us how God works behind the scenes, accomplishing his plans. God does this because he loves us. He preserves us, his plans for us, the nations we live in, because he loves us. And most of the time, it's done in a way that you don't really see that it's him. That requires faith, doesn't it? Requires faith. It's a walk of faith. Reading the book of Esther helps us grow in that faith. Helps us to realize even when it seems like God's far away, we know because we read the book that he's actually very involved. We just can't see it. Just like the book of Esther, we can say we know God is with us even though it doesn't appear that he's anywhere close. The book of Esther says otherwise. The book of Esther is the book of divine providence. So let's pick up chapter 1, the king and his glory. Now it took place in the days of 
Ahasuerus, the Harasuerus, I'm just going to say Xerxes. That's the Latin form of, of the Aramaic and the, and the Hebrew. Okay, so Xerxes, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 120 provinces. By the way, I had that pronunciation down. But you get up here in front of everyone and it always goes away. Okay, so. In those days, uh, as King Xerxes sat on his royal throne, which is in the citadel of Susa in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles, the princes of his provinces being in his presence, and he displayed the riches of his royal glory, the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. When these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least. In the court of the garden of the king's palace, there were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns, and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion, for so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to King Xerxes. Verses 10 through 18. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded his men, the seven eunuchs, who served in the presence of King Xerxes, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty. That is slide 87, by the way. To bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. This extravagant, majestic king with all of his men, with all of his people, inviting the greatest to the least to this in, incredible banquet. And in the midst of this great celebration, the king decides, I want to bring the queen in, in all of her glory. I want you to see the beauty and the majesty of, of the queen of Persia, right? So he commands his men, go get her, bring her in. This is going to be really just an amazing show of glory and power and wonder as presented, as illustrated in the life of the king and the queen. Verse 12. Remember, she's having her own party. Verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. Kings and queens 
are positions of power and authority. This is not about a husband and a wife. This is about a king and a queen before their people. It is an ordered authority represented in both the king and the queen. An ordered authority that must be respected and honored by all, even the very ones in those positions. All authority is from God. Their authority as king and queen over Persia came from God. Romans 13, 1 through 2, this is what Paul says. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they have opposed, they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. All authority is from God. None exists that hasn't been established by God. Are those just Christian authorities that Paul's speaking of? Are those just Jewish authorities that Paul's speaking of? We need to think through this. In America, we're highly, highly independent. There's a rugged individualism that's a part of our DNA as a nation, as, as citizens. And we tend to just see ourselves as our own kings and queens, don't we? I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes, but I want you to understand what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying you need to understand that authority, all of it, even pagan authorities, are established by God. Now, I know that doesn't sit well with us. You know, why would God establish pagan authorities and call us, right, to submit to them? What is he thinking? I don't know. Maybe you're smarter than God. Maybe you can ask him to step off his throne and you can rule the universe. I think God knows what he's doing. I think we just don't always understand it. John 19, 9 through 11. This is Jesus before the governor, Pontius Pilate. This is right before he's going to be handed over to be crucified. So Pilate's been questioning him. Verse 9 says, And he, Pilate, entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you. Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Pontius Pilate said, I'm the governor. I have the backing of the emperor and the military. I have authority to release you. I have authority to crucify you. You need to speak up when I speak to you. Jesus didn't bring any railing judgments, didn't rebuke him, didn't get into a name-calling, mudslinging, who's got the authority contest, right? He simply says to him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus recognized that Pilate's authority came from heaven. 
he recognized that Pilate's authority to question him came from his Father in heaven. A whole lot of things going on in the nation. Having to do directly with authority structures. The story of Esther speaks to this. We can take these ancient stories and learn and apply them to our lives and experience the drama and even the triumph of what these principles bring in similar circumstances. I want to present to you another set of verses that are somewhat disturbing. This is the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. In Daniel chapter 2, the king has a dream, a vision, and no one has the answer or the interpretation of that. And the king is very unsettled, and people are going to pay a price that are supposed to be the dream interpreters that can't give him the interpretation. And finally, Daniel steps up because he's an interpreter. He's a dream interpreter. So Daniel stands up and says, God will give you the answer to your dream or the interpretation of your dream. And he begins to unveil, un, 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 uh, un, unveil for the king the meaning of his vision. And I just want to jump right into this. It's verse 36 through 38. Daniel says to this pagan king of Babylon, this was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, you, king of Babylon, you, you, this is the pagan king of Babylon. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. God gives a pagan king the authority to rule over the world. Everyone's commanded to submit to the king who God himself established as the ruler over all things. A pagan king. We think we can defy pagan rulers. We think we can dismiss people in places of authority because they're pagan. They're godless. We can call them names. We can belittle them. We can mock them with our memes. Really? Last time I checked, all authorities established by God, the good and the bad. People, we need to understand what's going on here. We need to take another look at the story of Esther and Mordecai and how they relate to a pagan king, pagan rulers, corrupt regimes. If we want to shine like stars in, in this time of darkness, we have to follow the principles God's laid out for us so that we can shine in the darkness. I always thought that was so intriguing that God would give a pagan king 
authority over everything. You, O oh king of Babylon, are king of kings. You know, that's, that's the title that's given to the Son of God when he's given the kingdom of heaven and earth. King of kings and Lord of lords. Isn't that something? 1 Peter chapter 2, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Congress, the Senate, the Supreme Court, our lower courts, law enforcement, every institution, right? Listen to this. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Submission is an issue of the heart. It's an issue of the heart. It's decorum. It's, it's where you show honor to those in authority. It doesn't say you have to obey them. No, there's plenty of examples of where you can actually disobey your authorities. If they're asking you to do something that violates the word of God, you can disobey. You can't mock them. You can't raise your voice. You can't call them names. You have to submit submission's honor. You have to be honorable in your disobedience. That honor is what recognizes that God is the one who's in control and yes, at times he appoints men and women that are imperfect to rule and reign over us. And to honor them in that position is to honor God. Submit yourselves for the sake of the Lord to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent from him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. I've made this statement for many, many years. If, if Paul could make the case to honor the king, and guess who the king was in his day? Who knows who the king was in his day? Nero, the beast of Rome. Even Roman historians called Nero the beast of Rome. He was the worst of the worst. And he hated Christians. Honor the king. You don't have to obey him, but you got to honor him. So I'd make the case, you know what? We need to honor our presidents, whether we voted for them or not. We need to honor them. People would tell me, hey, they're not the king. They're not kings. They're our representatives. We're the opposite of a monarchy. The passage doesn't work, pastor. It doesn't say, you know, honor your representatives who work for you, by the way. They're your servants. When you think about it, our president, our vice president, everyone that's elected is actually our servant because we're the kings. That's the genius of our constitutional republic. You and I are the kings. So they'd, they'd point out, I, I don't have to do that because they're not my king anyway. They're my servant. Well, okay, that's true. That's true. Well, let's just go back to the passage. Honor the king, honor the king, honor the king. Oh, right here at the beginning of that verse, it says honor all people which includes the king. But you got to honor all people, which includes the king. Honor all people will also include the president and the vice president, whether you voted for them or not. Isn't that true? Is that safe? Honor all people. you got to honor people. 
Even your enemy deserves honor. Do you know there are nations that show great honor even in the execution of the enemies at wartime? And there's other ones that show no honor. They're hideous nations. They have no guidelines in their war. You know, God gave Israel a bunch of guidelines for how they're to do war as well, how they're to treat their enemies. This honor thing is a big deal. This honor thing is something I think God wants to do in our community to really help us pull together so that we become people that honor others, especially those in authority, even when we disagree with them, even when we have to disobey. We do that with honor. It's not just civil authorities that we honor. It's also ecclesiastical leaders. The sphere of the church, the sphere of the kingdom. In our community, our highest leaders are the board of directors. The board of directors have been invested with some of the highest positions of authority and power. They are to be honored. These men are, are qualified, biblically qualified, qualified as elders of the community. They serve as board of directors, but they're elder qualified. Our elders deserve great honor for who they are and the positions they hold. Pastors, our staff, directors of ministries, heads and leaders of ministries. These are positions of authority and power in our community. They serve us, but they are our authorities. And they deserve honor, great honor, for who they are. If Daniel can tell the people of God in his day to honor the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, if Paul can say, honor the king who happened to be Nero, how much more so can we honor our own leaders in our own communities who are righteous men and women? That's easy. What about the home? What about the home? You know, parents have God-given authority to rule and govern their homes. Bonafide delegated authority. Parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, older siblings. You know, we've lost the art of honor. You know, you know I, I, I'm old enough that I can remember what that looked like as a young boy. An aunt, an uncle would come into the room. You'd just stand up. Everyone would just stand up, you know. You did that for anyone who was like a parent, a grandparent, whatever. As, as kids, we'd just stand up. Anyone that had gray hair, you stand up. You show honor. No one knew why. Life was too fun. Yeah. But when you go through decades of living, you end up with some pretty deep wounding and scars in life. And if you can endure that and keep your sanity and civility, you deserve some respect. We need to teach our children. You respect your mom and your dad. They're worthy of respect. Go watch a movie where you get to see a woman give birth. You'll respect your mom a whole lot more. Did you raise your voice at your mother? What she went through to get you out and among us? I'll slap you if you diss your mother, you know? 
I, I, back in the day, we, that would happen. My brother, he was a senior in high school, you know, and he was pretty, pretty strong and feeling his oats and getting a little frisky. And we're at the dinner table. He's all upset because he got expel, or suspended from school because uh, he ditched, he lied, said he was sick. And my mom ratted him out. She found out that he'd lied and he wasn't in school. And so she called him up and said, no, he's not sick. Ditching. So he's in all kinds of trouble. He was so mad. He was so mad. He's sitting at the supper table. My mom says, you want to tell your dad what you did? And he said, which? I'm sorry, it rhymes with which. Yeah, he said, just, saw, just kind of floated that out there. We're all eating, you know. The whole family instantly stops. It's like the wild world sports, you know. It's like some big event's going to take place, you know. Yeah, we all just kind of stopped. My dad just, like, dropped his fork. He was like, mic drop with the fork. He says, apologize to your mother. My brother just stared at my dad. Had too much pride. He was very upset. So there was a pause. My dad stood up, kicked the chair, chair hit the wall. You know, it was like a John Wayne movie. It, you know, it's better than movies. My dad walks around the table, walks all the way to the end, takes his glasses off, sets it on the table right in front of my brother, sets his glasses on the table right in front of my brother, and then balls his fist. I mean, we're watching all of it, you know, it's just like, wow, you know, technicolor. Yeah. My brother then turns to my mom and says, no one says anything. My mom doesn't say anything. It's totally quiet. My dad pauses, picks up his glasses, puts them on, walks slowly back, sits at the table, or pulls his chair up, sits at the table, grabs his fork, kind of looks around, sticks it into his mill, and everyone else is like, just food fest again. You know, everything's just fine, ready to go forward. I thought, wow. I learned a, I learned a lesson that day. I was about four years younger than my brother. I was always watching him. I had my little book all the time. Don't do that, you know. <laughs> that was one of those days. Don't do that. Don't ever call mom a name, you know. Never call her a name, you know. But I'll tell you what, my brother and the rest of the family learned valuable lessons about what it, what it means to respect those in authority over you. Even when you're in strong disagreements, even when you're hurt, you show respect. We need to teach our kids to respect their elders and to respect their older siblings as well. There's a pecking order. The youngest one in the family might complain and say, well, who am I over? Buy him a dog, a bird, a turtle, and then let him rule and reign over the animal. Everyone's going to be happy. Okay. Then the king said, verse 13, to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king to speak before all who knew the law and justice and were close to him. So he speaks to the seven princes that were there of Persian media who had had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. The king and his wise men. They're sitting right up next to him. That was a place of honor. To get close to the king in terms of relationship was a reward for service. And those men are the top men in his government. And if you note, it's all about the rule of law. 
This is an issue of the rule of law. He calls his wise men. He says, help me out. This is a big problem. You know, what, what, what does the law say in terms of what should be done? Verse 15, according to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she did not obey the command of the king Xerxes, delivered by the eunuchs. What's to be done with her? She didn't obey the, the command of the king. They're saying, what is the big deal? So what? You know, he wanted to show off her beauty. That's sexist. So she said, no, what's the big deal? Yeah, it's called insubordination. It's huge. If you have a, a society that's ruled by law and order, this becomes a big issue. Because if that's disrupted and begins to fall apart, you'll have mob rule. You don't want that. It's a very dangerous place to be living where there is no rule of law. Verse 16, in the presence of the king and the princes, Mubikin said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also the princes and all the peoples who are living in all the princes of King Xerxes. What she did, king, was not only an act of insubordination against the king. Actually, it was an act of insubordination against all of the subjects of the kingdom. Verse 17, for the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. Go ahead and leave that up for a minute. She did not come. She's the queen. She's not just any woman. If this was just one of the citizens of the king or subjects of the king, this would not be near the issue. This is an issue because she's the number one first lady of the empire. Everything she does is, is a modeling for all the other women. For her to say, no, I'm not coming. Just bold-faced, premeditative, uh, uh, you know, insubordination. That thing is going to shake down to all the other women. That's going to create so many problems, you can't even begin to understand the trouble that's going to come to your kingdom, O king. Insubordination is huge. When you, just, when you just defy and neglect or reject a clear command from your delegated authority, that's no small potatoes. I was in the union for 20 years. I was a union steward. I organized strikes. I wrote strike schedules. I helped people get paid who were on strike. I represented employees with, their, with the employer for 20 years. Yeah, I understand what, what, what a union is. It's like the old, what is it, Woody Guthrie song, You Can't Fire Me, I'm in the Union. You know? it, when you're in a strong union, it's almost impossible to be fired. Believe me. Except for one thing. Insubordination. If you were insubordinate, there's nothing the union could do for you. 
We had to teach our employees over and over and over, whatever you're told to do, do it. What happens if it's a violation of my job description? You know, it's, it's, they're wanting me to do something that is above my pay grade, but they're not going to pay me that, you know, because they want that cheap labor. But, you know, what do I do then? I mean, it's not my job description. I don't have to do it. Do it anyway. If they tell you to do it, do it. Because if you don't, it's insubordination and there's nothing we can do. But if you'll do it, you can file a grievance. Then we can address it after the fact and we can make that right. But if you think you can tell your employer no to a clear command, you're fired and there's nothing we can do. 1 Samuel 15, 23. Saul, who was disobeying the clear command of the Lord God, King of kings and Lord of lords, right? Saul did that. God sent the prophet Samuel to him. And Saul tried to justify what he was doing. And Samuel gives him a huge rebuke. This is part of the rebuke. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. Rebellion and divination are related. They overlap. They are very similar. He goes on to say, an insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. In essence, Samuel the prophet said, you're fired. I got a message from heaven, king. Fired. Give me the crown. It's over. What's the big deal? Insubordination. Clearly, premeditatively saying no to the command of the king. It is a big deal. Children, obey your parents. Employees, obey your employers. Citizens, obey your representatives and leaders. Church members, obey your leaders. Everyone's called to lead and everyone's called to follow. There's always going to be someone you have to submit to in life and others who are submitting to you. And if you refuse to submit to your leaders, why should anyone under your care submit to you? Yeah, if you want that, you've got to demonstrate that. If you're in a place or a position of power, it's even more important. That, that's why there's laws. If you're, if you're a professional counselor and you take advantage of someone that's hurting through that counseling, and you end up in a relationship with them, the penalty is much, much graver because the state recognizes that you have power and authority, position of influence, and that that influence has influence and power over others. Therefore, you're more responsible for what you do because had you not been that counselor, you couldn't have got away with that. So when you're in a position of power, it's all the more important to have integrity and to demonstrate submission to higher authorities. Verse 18. This day, the ladies of Persia and Media who have heard the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes and there will be plenty of contempt and anger.
if she gets away with this king, it's going to get worse. She'll begin to rebel more than ever if she gets away with it. The other ladies, they're going to demonstrate that with your own men. And our households will be shaken. It'll shake the empire in the end. I can tell you story after story after story of nations that, that, that rose and fell over these kind of issues at the highest levels. 19 through 22. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be repealed that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Xerxes and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. Queen Vashti fired. Done. Over. Your place of privilege, your place of honor, your place of power has been taken from you because you did not show honor to that same position of power, of beauty, of authority. Again, this is not an issue of husband and wife. It's an issue of the king and queen of Persia. When the king's edict, which he uh, will make, is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. It's going to trickle all the way down to the home of the least in the kingdom. It's problems. You say, well, that's just sexism. They deserve it. Really? What does God say about men and women? You know, it's very, very clear in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that men and women are equal, equal in every way when it comes to dignity and worth. But when it comes to role and function, there is no equality. There is hierarchy, not only in the home, but in civil government, in ecclesiastical government. And we shouldn't confuse that with worth or dignity because it's not about worth and dignity it's role and function some of the movements today in our country have as their mission their core part of their mission to disrupt dismantle and replace the nuclear family the traditional family of, of a biological male and a biological female in union, in marriage, in their family. To disrupt that, dismantle that, and replace that with something different that destroys the, role, the roles and the functions. It dissolves even the gender so that you have no role and function because there's no differences. We need to return to the rule of law. The law of nature and nature's God. Code for the laws that we can discern in nature itself and the laws that we can discern from the scriptures. Bible. Verse 21, this word pleased the king and the princes and the king did as moot. Uh, Memekin proposed, so he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script, and to everybody according to their language, 
that every man should be the master in his own house and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. Okay, so if someone wants to get my chairs ready, we're going to go into our question and answer time. But the stage is set. The stage is set. The queen's been removed. And no kingdom is going to survive without her queen. It's going to take a king and a queen to rule and reign over the people. So the stage is set. What are they going to do? They're going to find another queen. The wise men are going to come up with a plan. Not only will they identify the problem, they will also provide the solution. The solution will be, we need to find the king and his kingdom, a new queen. Thus, the story of Esther. And I can tell you right now, based on my notes, it's going to be more than a three-part series. Sorry. But it's a good one. You know it's good. Right? Can I hear an amen? Okay. We'll spend some time on this story. 